Hey, I'm Jake Humphrey, and you're listening to High Performance, our conversation for you every single week. This is the podcast that reminds you that it's within your ambition, your purpose, your story. It's all there. We just help unlock it by turning the lived experiences of the planet's highest performers into your life lessons. So allow myself and Professor Damien Hughes to speak to the greatest thinkers on the planet so they can be your teacher. And I am so excited about today's episode. Um, can I just apologize for the number of times that I've mentioned over the last few years, Stoicism, The Daily Stoic and Ryan Holiday. It has become a little bit of an obsession with mine. I listen to it in the car when taking the kids to school and they start rolling their eyes when the amazing Daily Stoic podcast episodes start playing because they hear them every day, not because they're not brilliant, because they are brilliant and they are game changers. And before we um, tell you more about Ryan Holiday, um, I read his book, The Daily Stoic, every day. And I opened up uh, a random page and this is what it said. We don't abandon our pursuits because we despair of ever perfecting them. Now that was said thousands of years ago by Epictetus. And what Epictetus is reminding us is that we're never going to be perfect. If there even is such a thing as perfection, because we are human, our pursuits shouldn't be aimed at perfection. They should be aimed at progress. And with that in mind, welcome to High Performance, Ryan Holiday. There's nothing that isn't enhanced by discipline. So this idea for the Stokes was that, you know, the most powerful you can be is to be under your own power. That they said no one is fit to rule who is not first master of themselves. As life throws difficult things at us, discipline is required. And you don't want in that moment of trial or adversity or difficulty to find that this is a totally unfamiliar space for you. When you live below your means, when you, you know, sort of live and avo you try to avoid superfluous things, when you try to keep ambition in check, it, it, it does have the benefit of creating a kind of a buffer or uh, a freedom that allows you not to, to always need, need, need to, to do more and, and be recognized more. Don't think of death as something in the future that you are moving towards. Think of death as something that's happening right now. It says, you know, the time that passes belongs to death. And so the idea that, you know, that time, once, once it goes by, once an hour is wasted, it is dead forever. Uh, once a year of your life is dead forever because you spent it being sorry for yourself, you spent it drunk, you know, you spent it uh, scared, whatever it was, you know, you never get that back. And so how you choose to spend your time is the most important choice that you make because time is the most precious resource that there is. Oh, it was such a fun episode for me, this. I annoyed Damien by sort of being a bit of a fanboy of Ryan, as you'll probably hear in the episode. But this guy is cool, man. And we can all learn so much from him. And it's not just because he's, you know, written books that have sold millions of copies or that he's a prolific writer or that he hosts his own podcast called The Daily Stoic or that he has a new book out called Discipline is Destiny, which is what we talk about. But because he is distilling the thinking and the writings and the set of beliefs that were used by the Stoics thousands and thousands of years ago. And they honestly speak to me. They inspire me every single day. And I think we can all learn so much from them, particularly in this divisive, separate, aggressive, point-scoring world that we all live in now. I think if ever we need stoicism, it is now. Let's get on with it. Welcome to High Performance. Best-selling author, stoic thinker, leader, inspirer, an all-round cool guy. This is our conversation 
with Ryan Holiday. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Well, Ryan... Welcome to High Performance. On a personal note, this is probably the single most exciting episode I've ever recorded. Not to say that I haven't loved the previous 150 <laughs> guests, um, but I kind of feel like we're brothers because I spend every day with you. I love that. <laughs> it's a slightly strange, stalkerish introduction to the podcast. <laughs> but no, I'm a firm advocate of stoicism. And I, what I'd love from this conversation is for people who've never heard of stoicism or haven't looked into it, just at least to leave feeling inquisitive. So let me ask you, first of all, if a stoic was answering this question many, many years ago, and I said to them, what is high performance? What would uh, Epictetus or Seneca, how would they answer that question? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think it's worth pointing out that they wouldn't have been, you know, sort of sitting in some academic setting, pondering what high performance looked like. Right? The Stoics were in the arena, uh, literally and figuratively. Right? Seneca is uh, probably the greatest playwright of his generation, in addition to being a philosopher, in addition to being a powerful politician. Marcus Aurelius is the emperor of Rome, who also trains in wrestling and boxing and a number of different sports. So the, the Stoics were sort of actively engaged in a number of different pursuits, most of which uh, at, at the highest of levels. They don't really give us a, a sort of an absolute definition where they go, look, this is what high performance looks like. 
But they do talk a lot about greatness and they do talk a lot about sort of realizing one's potential. And I suspect their answer would have something to do with that. It, it certainly wouldn't say like high performance is winning. High performance is setting this record or, you know, accomplishing that. I don't think it would be rooted in an external accomplishment at all. Because to the Stoics, it was about focusing on what you control. So I suspect it would be something to do with what one is capable of doing when all of your facilities, all of your faculties, all of your effort, all of your focus is directed purely at the task at hand and you're giving everything that you have to it. I use the word stillness when I talk about the Stoics as it's a, it's a, a word they frequently would draw on. I think it's some form of that kind of flow state where everything else falls away. And the only thing that matters, the only thing that's there is the moment or the task in front of you. And how similar is that to your definition of high performance? I mean, it's, it's very similar. I mean, that's, that's the place I try to get to when I do my work. I mean, it's funny, I'm talking to you today. I don't know when this comes out, but, but uh, the, the book is out today. And I was thinking not about, okay, how is it doing? How are the sales? But I, I, I spent this morning, as I spend every morning with a, a large uninterrupted block where I was working on the next thing, where... Uh, I was focused on what I control, which is the work itself, and I try to do my best to not think about what other people think, you know, how something is being received or not received, you know, what the numbers are. I try to focus as much as I can on, you know, doing the thing. So for people that are new or haven't heard of Stoicism before then, Ryan, what would you define as the most helpful tip you could share that they could try and adopt today? Well, the, the chief task of, of life, Epictetus says, uh, he's, a, he's a Greek slave who becomes one of the great Stoic philosophers. He says, the chief task in life is separating things into two buckets, that which is up to us and that which is not up to us. And this decision to distinguish and then to focus on the stuff that is in our control is probably the biggest breakthrough you can make. I know it seems very basic, but if you watch what most people do. They spend an inordinate amount of time focusing, spending energy in areas where it is impossible to make a difference, right? Uh, where they are regretting the past, worrying about the future, questioning whether something is fair or unfair, whether they're lucky or unlucky. And all of this is taking away from the thing in front of them, the task at hand. And I, so I think that there's a reason the Stoics start there. It's simple and straightforward. That doesn't mean that it's easy. But if we can start with what they, what they call the dichotomy of control, I think we have a big head start on most people. Love that. I want to talk to you about discipline because um, I read Discipline is Destiny um, and it was rather apt because I was on holiday on a Greek island. And so I was looking out at the blue sea thinking this very view the Stoics would have had all those years ago. Um, why is discipline such an important element when it comes to Stoicism and when it comes to us making the very best of our lives? Well, the, the Stoics break the philosophy down into four key virtues, the first of which is courage. The next is self-discipline or temperance which is then followed by justice and wisdom. So it's one of the big four. That's what I'm writing about now. But I think you could argue that, first off, there's nothing impressive, admirable, difficult, worth doing that, that does not require discipline. 
And then I would argue on top of that, there's nothing that isn't enhanced by discipline. So this idea for the Stoics was that, you know, the most powerful you can be is to be under your own power, that they said no one is fit to rule who is not first master of themselves. So I think, uh, you know, whether we're talking about athletic performance or we're talking about entrepreneurial success or we're talking about, you know, the, the power of, of, of government or office, discipline is required to be successful in those things. But then the success in that field does not exempt one from discipline. In fact, it makes self-discipline even more important, right? Now, suddenly other people can't tell you what to do. Suddenly there are fewer limitations on you being imposed on you and you have to be in charge of yourself. And that that's, I think, a really difficult thing to do. And, and that's a compelling answer, Ryan. So the $64,000 question then is, how do we do it? How do we master ourselves? <laughs> yeah, I, look, I, I think I, I try to distinguish between the different types of discipline. I think there's first a, a kind of a physical discipline. When do you wake up? You know, how do you organize your environments, right? What do you eat? What do you not eat? What's your physical practice, right? That, so I think physical discipline is really, really important. And I would argue that from the physical discipline, we can build uh, the muscle of discipline, which then we apply to the harder domain of our emotions, right? Uh, you can be the most, you know, physically uh, controlled person in the world, as Tiger Woods was, and your emotional, spiritual chaos and anarchy can spill over and, and undermine that. But I do think that the more we practice discipline, you know, from waking up early yesterday, I, I did my daily practice of, of getting in a cold plunge. I'm building up the ability to, to be in charge of myself, right? And that I think this is something we practice. It's not something that's doled out at birth. It's a practice. It's a muscle that we cultivate. Uh, and what I try to talk about in the book are some sort of tried and true practices from people that we admire that we can hopefully try to apply in our own lives. And for people that are still questioning whether discipline really is the answer, I love it when you talk about discipline now and, and freedom later. What's the phrase? Yes. Labor passes quickly, but the fruits of the labor endures. I think that is so sure. powerful for people to hear. Yeah, I think we sometimes think that being ill-disciplined or not so hard on ourselves is easier, right? I don't want to stick to a strict diet. I don't want to have this rigorous routine. I don't want to work out. I, I don't want to do this stuff. But in the short term, perhaps that that's easier. But then, you know, on the larger level, not living the life that you want, not having the things that you want, sort of uh, wasting, you know, potential, wasting your one go around on this planet, that, that's all very, very painful, but it's also not pleasant to look at the mirror and not like what you see. It's also not pleasant to uh, get out of breath as you walk up a flight of stairs, right? Uh, as, as life throws difficult things at us, discipline is required. And you don't want in that moment of trial or adversity or difficulty to find that this is a totally unfamiliar space for you. When I'm struggling with a project, I'm able to draw on a reservoir of discipline, a uh, uh, a set of experiences that go that let me go. I've been through stuff like this before. I just have to keep going. It's not supposed to be fun, right? It's not supposed to be easy. But if I keep going, eventually I'll get where I want to go. The cultivation of discipline is immensely valuable. And, and I would argue that the short-term pleasures 
of not being disciplined uh, ultimately result in in sort of pains and regrets and trouble later. But they also spoke, one of the other virtues you described, Brian, was temperance, so have nothing in excess. Would you explain to us why that's so important? Well, you know, the, the rival philosoph- philosophical schools of the Stoics is the Epicureans. And both Epicureanism and Stoicism don't mean in the English language what they meant, you know, back 2,000 years ago. But the Epicureans are sort of seen as these, like, pleasure-loving hedonists, right? Um, but in fact, temperance was a virtue to them, too. Epicurus talks about how, look, drinking might be great, but if it gives you a terrible hangover the next morning... That, that pleasure and pain, you know, balance each other out. And so for the Stoics and for the Epicureans, it wasn't an abstinence from all things enjoyable. It was about finding temperance or balance, moderation, that allows us to enjoy things without taking them too far. And, and nowhere actually is this more important than discipline itself, right? If you are so driven, so committed, I was just talking to someone uh, the other day about a marathon runner uh, who uh, at about mile eight, you know, broke their leg. And then the rest of the marathon kept going. And this can feel like, uh, you know, some heroic feat of discipline. I think the Stokes would say that's insane, right? Like if you were fleeing a murderer, of course, run as many miles as you can on a broken leg. But to, to risk serious damage to your body because you don't have the discipline to say, I am in sheer agony, nothing is worth continuing if I'm going to lose the use of my leg for months and months as a result of what I'm doing, you know, you have become undisciplined about discipline. And that, that's an issue for a lot of driven people. We go too far and the result is a divorce. The result is your children don't recognize you. You know, the result is is you look back on your life and you go, why did I think these things mattered so much? The challenge is how we, how we get out of that mindset though, isn't it? Particularly in this modern world, you know, I think about you talking about, you know, having discipline, discipline now, freedom later. We live in a world that tells us have what you want when you want it. We live in a world where everyone's an entrepreneur, everyone's a self-starter, everyone's got a nice car, everyone's showing you the showroom of their life on Instagram. How can a stoic mindset help us to deal with that external pressure? Well, one of my favorite quotes from Seneca, he defines tranquility as a sense of the path that you're on and not being distracted by the paths which crisscross yours, particularly those of the people who are hopelessly lost. Right. And so when you have a strong sense of who you are and what you're trying to do, first off, it makes it easier to be disciplined. Right. If if you're saying, hey, I'm training for, you know, the Olympics and your friends are out partying and, you know, whatever, you know, hey, that's not what's valuable to me. What's valuable to me is this goal that I'm set. But also, you know, if your priorities are your family and you never see them because you're so committed to winning and improving your times, you may end up getting that gold medal at a very expensive cost, right? And so I think having a kind of a North Star, a set of values, a set of priorities is really, really key because it gives us uh, something to focus on, something to feel secure in, 
that doesn't, you know, if you don't know what you want, you end up defaulting into what everyone else wants. Or if you don't know what you should be doing, you end up doing what everyone else is doing. And that can lead you dangerously, dangerously astray. So what were the Stoics' values then? I know you explained, and what's the difference between them and the virtues? The virtues are the sort of touchstones of goodness, Marcus really says, the, the, the sort of things you build a life uh, around and towards. But I think each of us has to have a life that we are trying to lead and do. For me, I think about, like, I want to be great at writing, which is my gift or, 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 or calling. But I also want to be a good husband and I want to be a good spouse. And these three values or these three independent goals are also related and interdependent on each other. And it would be easier to pursue one at the expense of the others. But the result is, you know, if we're talking about balance, the result is a very unbalanced life. And so understanding how our conflicting or interrelated goals you know, connect with each other, I do, I do think is really, really important. And what about for people listening to this who, for whom the goal is the challenge, the, they don't feel they found their calling. I, I, there's some wonderful thoughts from the Stoics about following your heart, right? Yeah, well, my mentor, the great Robert Greene, talks about uh, your life's task. And he says, you know, it's not your passion, but it's finding your life's task. Like, what is the unique thing that you are able to do that perhaps no one can do the way that you can do it? And it, 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 it's not easy to identify this thing. And in fact, there might be many things that you are good at. There might be many things that you could be well compensated in. But it's kind of finding that thing that you are meant to do. He says, often we have to go back to our childhood before, you know, there were all these you know, uh, conflicting messages or distracting things that um, have taken us away from that thing. But, you know, what's the thing that you would do even if they didn't pay you for it? What's the thing that if you didn't do, wouldn't get done? You know, these are questions I kind of like to ask myself and, uh, and, and they, they help sort of guide you back towards whatever that thing is. So what, what kind of questions would the Stoics have proposed asking them to, to discover the North Star? Well, look, the, the, the Stoics lived in a much more hierarchical, stratified society, right? So I'll, I'll give you an example. Marcus Aurelius does not want to be emperor. And it's not even like a Prince Charles situation where his parents are royals, right? Marcus Aurelius is actually chosen as a young man. He's adopted by the emperor and then raised for the throne. I think if you could have asked Marcus Aurelius what he... Uh, wanted to do, he probably would have said, oh, I want to be a philosopher. But then life intervenes and he, find, he finds himself in this position of great power and responsibility. And yet, right, he doesn't see this as a conflict with the philosophy, but an opportunity. He writes in Meditations, he says, you know what, actually no role is so well suited to philosophy as the one that you're in right now. He realizes oh, instead of thinking about these things in the abstract, thinking about them theoretically, teaching young students about them, I have to be a philosopher king. I have to actually put these ideas into practice at the highest level. And so I think there's our life's task. And then, of course, there are the, the events of, of life itself. And these things kind of intersect in a way that, you know, hopefully bring us to a moment of destiny or our unique calling. In your book, you, you have a lot of references to our late queen, Queen Elizabeth II. Why did you choose her as such a, an important reference point? 
Yeah, it's funny. Uh, well, not really funny, but I, I wrote quite a bit about her and then uh, it all in the present tense as she was still alive. And then as the book's going to publication, she died. I also wrote quite a bit about Tom Brady, who retired and unretired in the process uh, of writing the book. So, um, you know, the books are often sort of a moment in time that when the reader finally gets them, things can be so radically different. But what I think is so fascinating about someone like Queen Elizabeth and, and your, your constitutional monarchy is that although they have this position of what you might think is great power, in fact, the list of what they can't do is so much longer than the list of what they can do. And I think she's a, a wonder or was a wonderful and inspiring example of self-discipline as a kind of restraint. You know, she, before COVID, right, she was a believer in protocol right? Or protocols. Like, what are the rules? What are the obligations? What are the duties of my position? And how do I observe those to the best of my ability, even when that's unpleasant, even when that's painful, even when there is every part of me that disagrees with this policy, that has an opinion on this policy? I mean, imagine having access to essentially every single decision and bit of information in a government over the course of 70 years, that you are simultaneously unable to do even a single thing about, right? Every decision is made in your name, but you are not allowed to participate in said decision. And when you really think about what that would demand of a person, it would demand an incredible amount of restraint, an incredible amount of poise. And so I don't want people to think that self-discipline is just, you know, hey, I can run a marathon on a broken leg. It's also... I can deal with the media criticizing me. I can deal with the media saying things that are totally incorrect about me. I can deal with being misunderstood. I can deal with being uh, unappreciated. I can deal with all of this and put up with it because that's what my job is. So beyond the Queen then, Ryan, is there any other examples of modern day leaders that you think embody the Stoics messages? Well, I generally try not to talk about modern leaders, as I've learned uh, in my books. First off, because they can be sort of politically polarizing. But second, you know, you never know what they're going to do. I talk about Tom Brady and then suddenly he retires and unretires and uh, then is breaking tablets on, on the sidelines because the game is not going well, right? So one of the benefits of writing about history is that it's a little cleaner. I admire people, I guess, when I'm talking about a, a, a leader who is disciplined, I think I'm talking about the kind of leader who, one, sees themselves as a servant as opposed to someone who is, you know, kind of exempt from the rules. But I'm also trying to talk about leaders who, you know, don't make this, and I'm, I'm thinking about this more in the Justice book that I'm writing, but, you know, we, we kind of make this distinction these days between, like, what's allowed and what's legal, Right. To me, when you look at someone like Queen Elizabeth, when you look at great leaders, what's legal is not what they care about. What they care about is their own sort of personal code of conduct. They care about what they think the right thing is. And this kind of restraint uh, or self-control or, or self-imposed code of ethics is all too uh, rare these days. There's a, a four-star general here in America. He was briefly the Secretary of Defense. His name is General James Mattis. You know, he, he talks about coming up with your flat ass rules and sticking to them. I think he's done a remarkably good job of that. But I would say, unfortunately, leaders like that tend to be more the exception than the rule. So do you think some of this is because some of these virtues that you're describing are almost 
boring in nature. Like they're not glamorous, they're not spectacular, they don't garner headlines. They're sort of just quietly effective. Sure. Yeah, they're a little old-fashioned. They can feel at times to be contrary to one's self-interest. So uh, again, to go to the queen, she never gives an on-the-record interview in 70 years, right? Now, she happens to be in the unique position of being queen, so she's always famous, even though she's not, you know, sort of regularly seeking out publicity in that sense. But you and I in that position to say, hey, I'm not going to chase media attention. I'm just going to do the work. Well, the resulting consequence of that might be you do really good work, but nobody knows about it, right? And so the more disciplined you are, the less you're driven by ego, uh, the less you need credit or attention, the consequence of that is that you might not be as well known. And I think it's worth pointing out that, you know, sort of most truly admirable, truly great, truly successful people are people that we've never heard of and we haven't heard of them by choice. And that plays into the ego being the enemy, right? Which is mm-hmm. a previous b- book of yours. Would you mind just sharing for 30 seconds with listeners to this podcast who, who haven't read the book, why is ego the enemy? Well, look, e- ego is not the enemy of getting attention or, you know, being famous or, you know, being the, 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 the center of, you know, a media narrative or whatever. O- obviously, it's quite good for that. But if you're trying to do good work, if you're trying to do things that connect with people, the less it's about you and the more it's about them and the work, the better it will be. So I kind of see ego as this kind of film, that this this barrier that gets between us and what we're trying to do, what we need to do. It it also, I think, gets in between us and, you know, self-awareness. It gets in between us and connection and happiness and contentment and all these things. But I I see ego as something that takes us away from reality. And reality is the place where we are, we we need to be to to be at at peak performance. I was thinking about you and and your podcast, The Daily Stoic, which um, before we started recording, I explained to you that my poor children, Florence and Sebastian, are subjected every day before school to an episode of The Daily Stoic on on the school run followed by an uplifting song and the final words from us are be the light in the room which is our kind of final parting message that's so lovely but the reason why i was i was thinking deeply about this interview is because i knew that we were meeting but i also saw a really nice quote which i think played perfectly into this because i was thinking why did i stumble across ryan holiday and stoicism on on my podcasts and i'm obsessed with it and i love it and i realized it's not because of and I don't want this to sound rude, Ryan, it's not because of how I feel about you or how I feel about your podcast. It's how your podcast makes me feel about myself. And I think that is a really interesting thing for us to explore. You, you know, and again, it comes back to ego. It's we need to realise that how we make other people feel is far more important than how they feel about us. No, I, I first off, I'm, I'm honoured to hear that. And, and, I, I do think that's something that I think about. Like, look, like if you're making music or you're making a product or, you know, you are running for office, whatever it is that you do, it depends on you delivering value for other people, enough value that they pay for it, enough value that they vote for you, enough value that they talk to other people about it. And so ultimately, the, the lens to, to do that is not going to be about ego or self-aggrandizement, it's going to be primarily about 
what do they need? What do they want? What are you doing for them? I remember I was talking to my editor once. I was talking to her about uh, a book I was writing and I was like, you know, I want it to be like this. I want it to be like this. And she said, you know, it's not what a book is. It's what a book does, right? It's what it does for someone else, right? And so uh, obviously writing is uh, fulfilling for me and I I'm writing to myself as much as anything just like all art has to start, you know, specific to become general. But I am trying to bring something that I think will be valuable to other people. I'm not trying to preach or uh, celebrate myself. And, you know, in the vast majority of my books, with the exception of usually the afterword, um, the word I does not appear anywhere in the books. Uh, I'm, I'm not talking about my perspective. I'm talking about what other people have said for the most and part. And do you ever have to catch yourself as, as your recognition and fame grows? You know, I, does your ego grow at the same rate? I assume not. I mean, look, I, I, I think ego is always there and, and probably the most egotistical thing you could do would be to proclaim that you don't have an ego, right? Um, but I, I do try to set up systems or structures that, uh, like I was saying, my routine today was not, hey, I'm going to be furiously refreshing Amazon to see what the rank is. It was, I'm going to be working because the work is humbling and the work is quite frankly kicking my ass. And, you know, the more I stay in that, the less it sort of goes, you know, go goes to my to my head. One of the things I talk about in this book about discipline is, you know, when you live below your means, when you, you know, sort of live and you try to avoid superfluous things, when you try to keep ambition in check, it, it, it does have the benefit of creating a kind of a buffer or uh, a, a freedom that allows you not to, to always need, need, need to, to do more and, and be recognized more. Can you share with us some of the best tips that you've seen in how we can manage other people's ego and i'm and i say this in with with respect to what's in our control and what's not within it but there'll be lots of our listeners thinking about right okay i i'm interested in this stuff but how can i get others to maybe buy into it unconsciously yeah i mean i have a bunch of thoughts there the, the number one thing is you know if you see uh you know it's an athlete it's a leader it's a boss uh, a politician with you know immense uh, ego the first advice is, is sort of steer clear. This will inevitably be the end of them. Uh, Cyril Connolly famously said that ego sucks us down like the law of gravity, right? And so I, I am, I'm, first off, I begin by, by being just quite wary of, of, of folks like that. Um, second, uh, I, I think it's worth pointing out that uh, while it's really easy to spot other people's ego, in some ways, this is a distraction from, you know, our own ego, right? We, we see how damaging ego is in other people. We're very much less aware where we're in the sway of our own ego. So I think, I think that's worth pointing out. Um, but, but I think one of the most effective tools for dealing with ego is also one of the most compelling arguments for why you have to be so careful about it. The way you get egotistical people to do things is not by challenging them, but by uh, exploiting or directing them through this ego. Um, the way you get an egotistical person to do something is to convince them that it was their idea, 
right? Trump, famously profoundly egotistical, we can also stipulate quite stupid, uh, when he would get the briefing each day from his advisors, I mean, first off, you know, the presidential briefing is like the queen's box. It's pages and pages and pages. He doesn't like to read. So he's like, just give me a one pager. Like, imagine you're like, give me the whole world summed up in one page, right? Like the, just the profound uh, narcissism there. But anyways, what, 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 they, what they found is that if they really wanted him to do something or pay attention to something, they just had to put his name in it, right? So they, like, what he really wanted to see was like, quotes about himself. He wanted to see what other people were thinking about, right? He was, he saw the entire world through the lens of, well, what does this say about me? What do other people think about me? How does this make me look? And so you can imagine, you know, he's not surrounded by the best and the brightest, of course, but the way that they would manipulate him to get things out of him came through, you know, telling him what he wanted to hear, namely, you know, how something would make him look really good or how not doing something might make him look very bad. And so I think the problem with ego is not just that it's obnoxious, not just that it's often unwarranted, but that it's profoundly manipulatable. This is why Putin doesn't, doesn't fear Trump. Putin probably with all his intelligence experience goes like, that's a guy I can work with, right? Meaning that's a guy I can get to do what I want because he understands that he has this, you know, enormous vulnerability that is his narcissism. Fascinating. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowl and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowl and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. I'm Sandra. And I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. We talk, you know, Ryan, about a lot of things on this podcast that I've realized actually have their roots in stoicism. So what we call world-class basics, and we talk about this like small, tiny decisions, not huge, big, world-changing decisions, because I think people think getting to their own version of high performance takes the big move, Right. But we talk about world-class basics, as you do in your book. You talk about clean your desk, make your bed, get your things in order. Can you explain to us why those seemingly insignificant things matter so deeply? 
Yeah, Zeno, the founder of Stoicism, he has a great line. He says, uh, well-being is realized by small steps, but it's no small thing. And I think that captures it perfectly, right? Like, uh, you know, we, we say don't sweat the small stuff. And this is obviously true in terms of, you know, sweating insignificant matters like, oh, uh, the sort of stresses of life. But when it comes to a craft or it comes to a profession or it comes to, you know, a specific endeavor, it's these loose ends, as the quote goes, that we hang ourselves by, right? The little things really matter. And so getting them right, the building blocks on, on, on top of which, you know, uh, high performance is built, they really, really matter. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I, think it's, I think it's key, you know, whether it's what time you wake up in the morning, what does your workstation look like? Are you practicing? You know, all, all these little things cumulatively create the performance that we'd like to think comes as this sort of moment of inspiration or great performance, but that's not really how it goes. So that's related to the exterior elements of it, but you also talk very powerfully around the magisterial, the soulful elements of it and you have that great phrase in your book Ryan around be tolerant with others but strict with yourself yes would you expand on that for us yeah I mean look it's on the one hand uh like discipline is rare so if you're just someone who's very strict you have high standards and you insist on everyone else meeting those high standards that's that's uh that'll get you pretty far um but I, I, li- I love and was very much inspired by this idea. One biographer said Marcus Aurelius's, you know, uh, strictness was limited solely to himself, meaning that, you know, he didn't go around disappointed in everyone all the time because they weren't like him. There was, a, there was an expression in Rome, we can't all be Cato's, meaning Cato, one of the famous Stoics, was so perfect that everyone else despaired of being a Cato. But this is true, you know, particularly in sports, like, Kobe Bryant struggles with the idea that not everyone is Kobe Bryant. And a lot of his conflict, a lot of his, uh, you know, animosity towards his teammates was rooted in expecting them to live up to not just impossible standards, but standards they never agreed to, right? Like we all have different goals. We all have different capabilities. We all have different journeys that we're on. And I think one of the key aspects of, of, of discipline is, is remembering that it's called self-discipline for a reason. It's not a thing that you get to wield as a weapon against other people. Some exceptions here in, in like, you know, if you're a military unit or something. But I, for the most part, discipline is something that begins and ends at home. And you have to leave other people to their own journey, uh, not just because that's fair, but also for your own personal happiness. If you want to be disappointed and angry and resentful all the time, there's no better way to do that than to expect other people to be a certain way. And I love the idea of being strict with yourself, but how does that sit with also being kind to yourself? How does that work with the Stoics? Yeah, uh, Seneca writes in one of his letters, he says, you know, I, I really think I'm making progress in this philosophy. How do I know, he says, because I've begun to be a better friend to myself. So I, I, I wanted to talk about this in the book because I don't want people to think that discipline is just whipping yourself harder and harder and harder to get a little bit more. You know, if your friend was struggling, you'd give them advice. You'd be happy to help. Um, you'd tell them to relax. You'd give them perspective. Uh, and we have to be able to do that for ourselves too, right? 
winning at whatever it is that we do should not come as some sort of terrible punishment, right? Uh, winning should not make us miserable. It should not cost us everything. And so I, again, coming back to this idea of balance, I think being a friend to yourself is of course holding yourself accountable, expecting the best of yourself, but it's also you know understanding that you're a human being, understanding that it's a long journey, understanding that nobody's perfect, and that we're all works in progress. So a lot of stoicism, from what I understand then, Ryan, was taught in in schools in those days. Why do you think that we neglect to teach this age-old wisdom today? You know, I think one of the reasons that it's not taught in universities is that it's so simple, right? It's hard to be a specialist in something that's pretty damn straightforward. Um, you know, over the centuries, philosophy stopped being this sort of practical way of thinking about life, about getting to high performance, about getting to your potential. And it started to become around a lot of big abstract questions or impossible questions. And th th this was true even in the time of the Stoics. The Stoics just didn't have time for that. It wasn't interesting to them. And I think, unfortunately, sort of academic philosophy, you know, has become so far removed from the arena, again, to go to where we began, that it just doesn't feel like it's of value to people. So people aren't interested in it. I'm going to get a tattoo, Ryan. I'm going to get a little MM on the inside of my wrist for uh, Memento Mori. Would you mind sharing your thoughts around Memento Mori with our listeners? Because whenever I say this to people, they go, well, that's a bit depressing. But it's the absolute total opposite of depressing and negative. Yeah, and look, I think the alternative is pretty depressing too. The idea that you're going to fool yourself about uh, the nature of life and thus waste the only life that you have because you don't want to think about something that at first glance is a little unpleasant. For, for the Stokes, memento mori is the practice of meditating actively on one's mortality. Mark Cirilla says, you could leave life right now, let that determine what you do and say and think. Right? He doesn't say you are going to leave life right now, so nothing matters. He says you could leave life right now. And so this is why he says we should focus. This is why we should treat the things we're doing as important. This is why we should not leave things undone. This is why we should not take people or places for granted. He says it's why we should, you know, embrace what is before us. I think the most powerful way of, of thinking about Memento Mori comes from Seneca. He says, you know, don't think of death as something in the future that you are moving towards. Think of death as something that's happening right now says, you know, the time that passes belongs to death. And so the idea that, you know, that time, once, once it goes by, once an hour is wasted, it is dead forever. Uh, once a year of your life is dead forever because you spent it being sorry for yourself, you spent it drunk, you know, you spent it uh, scared, whatever it was, you know, you never get that back. And so how you choose to spend your time is the most important choice that you make because time is the most precious resource that there is. So what's the tattoo that you've got, Ryan? If Jake's going to get the MM, what's your one and why is that so significant? So I, I have, uh, ego is the enemy, the obstacle is the way, stillness is the key, sort of three reminders, I, I think aphorisms or, or proverbs that are true in any and all situations, you know, that there's no problem so bad that we can't grow from it, you know, that ego is never a, a, a helpful thing to introduce. 
uh, and that you know sort of all great performance comes from this place of stillness. And then more recently, I got the the actual the four virtues of stoicism on my, on my left wrist as a as a reminder of sort of what is demanded of me, you know, in in each situation that I find myself in. Would you read out those four values for people that don't know of them? Yeah, courage, temperance, justice, wisdom. That's a great on your body reminder every day of those key uh, aphorisms for you. How did the Stoics go about reminding themselves of of these these powerful lessons? Yeah, I mean, I think that the journaling practice, uh, if you think about what meditations is for Marcus Aurelius, you know, he's sitting down and talking to himself about these ideas. You know, he never published a book uh, for an audience. He'd probably be mortified that we know what his philosophical thinking was. Instead, each day he would try to take a little bit of time and work through these ideas so as to always keep them top of mind. Really nice. And Ryan, our final question before we go, and this is a quite a personal one for me. When I was a teenager, I, I lost my grandmother. She took her own life. And it's something that I still struggle with today because of the age she was. And, you know, that's not what grandparents do, right? They're, they've got their lives figured out. And one thing that always resonates with me, with me when I listen to your work, whether I'm reading your books or listening to your podcast or using the Daily Stoic, 366 words of wisdom, which I look at each day, is stick around. And that yeah. important message of stick around, I'd love to finish with you just talking about that for people who are listening to this and who are struggling. You know, it, it, I wouldn't say there's an irony in it, but the, the tragedy of the Stoics is that uh, two of the most famous Stoics also die by suicide. Cato and Seneca are forced to die by their own hand. It's not like some depressive moment, but they are cornered by a tyrant and sort of forced to take their own life. But I think this this aside, the idea that nothing is truly unendurable, I think is something the Stoics try to remind themselves of always because life was so painful, because things were so difficult, because things were so scary. You know, Marcus Aurelius loses six children. Six of his children don't survive to adulthood. So you imagine, even if that's much more common at the time than it is now, imagine trying to get out of bed each morning when you've lost one child that you love. And so I, I think what we can find in the Stoics, you know, some people try to criticize Stoicism as this resignation or that it's depressive. I mean, that the Stoics could get out of bed every morning, given the tragedy and pain and difficulty that, that life dealt, many of them, I think is a is a monument to their strength and their perseverance and their ultimate hope that, you know, like things could get better, that people, uh, that they had some duty, some, some responsibility to the future, to the people who depended on them, to, to, to the people who loved them. And, and yeah, I think, I think sticking around is, is the most stoic thing that you can do. And, you know, we, we need you to stick around. Nobody knows what, you know, life is going to, what, what situations life is going to put them in in the future, but it could be a, you know, a heroic world-changing moment and it would be a shame uh, at that moment for you not to be here. So Ryan, putting our own egos to one side, um, we want you to tell us what question should we have asked you that we haven't done? I, I, th I think the, the question that you just asked me to me is the one that I think about the most. I don't want people to think of stoicism as this kind of unfeeling, you know, brute force thing. I mean, I, the Stoics, 
felt things, they felt pain, they felt lost, they felt like life was hopeless sometimes. But I think what's so impressive about them is that they always believed there was something they could do with that. And that's why they stuck around. That's why they pushed through. And, and, uh, and I'd, love, I'd love to leave people with that. Really nice. I often come back to the fact that actually the Stoics were, um, they realized the privilege of life and the privilege of getting up in the morning, having another day, the chance to think, to enjoy, to love and to share their wisdom. And, you know, I, we're really grateful for you for coming on here um, and sharing your incredible wisdom regarding the Stoics. And uh, I think people will get so much from that. Uh, that's very well said. And I, I totally agree. And, and thank you guys very much for having me. Oh, thanks, Ryan. It's been immense. Damien. Jake. Look, I, you know, I was slightly um, fanboying over him, but, but I love the whole mindset of the Stoics. And I think it's a, in some ways I liken it a bit to high performance. There will be things that people don't agree with. There'll be things that people can't relate to, but there'll be other things that people quite like and then other things that they actually want to adopt into their lives. And I think that that's what this is all about. You know, it's not Stoicism like the high performance podcast. It's not about a set mindset. This is how you have to be. It's, it's offering up a load of different thoughts and seeing what works for people. So which is the one that resonates most with you out of all the... All the books that you've read on that. Without, as I mentioned at the end, Memento Mori, which my sort of direct translation is Remember You're Dying. Yep. And I know that people can go, wow, that's a bit... But but I think Remember You're Dying like informs every decision you make every single day. You don't worry about the s- small things like losing your wallet or stubbing your toe because <laughs> you know it doesn't yeah, matter yeah. because you remember you're dying. Um, but then you do call your mum and dad and speak to your friends and put time into relationships because you remember you're dying and you do get up in the morning and you look at the world and think wow you know this is incredible and before I know it I won't be here because you do remember you're dying and I think that for me it's a totally positive way of thinking is it have you delved at all into stoicism since you prompted it that you were the one that your enthusiasm for it led me to pick up the ego is the enemy book which I really enjoyed um, I think the power of it for me is that I'm not sure who said it, but it's like simplicity without understanding something is simple. Simplicity with understanding is simplicity. So it's almost that idea that it's not just an aphorism that you just band out without thinking about it. It's the reflections, the daily time that you spend meditating on it that then leads it to then be something really quite profound and powerful. Yeah. And, and you know, it was really one of the one of the driving forces behind creating the high performance journal you know the fact that journaling and writing down your thoughts was a stoic behavior you know the power of that is as ryan mentioned when we interviewed him just then it it makes a difference it has an impact and i've realized people's lives are busy and they've got loads of things going on and you know at the moment there's lots of stresses and strains around so if we can create a journal that cuts through all of that and it takes them moments a day but it gets them closer to their own version of high performance through the thoughts and the work of the stoics then great what i love about it is that it's almost take like ryan said there in the interview that a lot of this is common sense and that's why they don't teach it at schools and universities because it's obvious but just because it's common sense isn't necessarily common practice and i think what you're describing there is how can listeners and hopefully readers take it on and make these messages a part of their daily routines. I hope they do. Thanks, mate. Thanks, mate. Loved it. 
Time to meet another high-performance listener and say hello to Jane Gray, who sent us a message saying that she set up a business at the start of lockdown after retraining in her late 40s. She's also a single mum. And she actually talks about the fact that, you know, sometimes when there's no one else to turn to, something like high-performance can almost offer you that advice, that perspective, and um, in some ways, almost a person to sort of share your thoughts with or to, to gain knowledge from. Um, she says that high performance has become a key part of her routine. So let's say hello. Hi, Jane. Hi there. Nice to meet you. How are you? I'm very good, thank you. So what was the business you set up at, at the start of lockdown? And probably even more useful for the people listening to this, what was the thing that made you think, you know what, I'm going to do this? Uh, as with a lot of people, circumstances, um, being a single mum and having been for, for quite a long time, well, over 10 years now, um, I tried the corporate full-time job and it just didn't work for, you know, three kids at that point, all at school. So it was kind of right. I need to do something different. I need to fit in with around their lives really and to be with her. I don't have anybody locally that I can rely on. So it was kind of right. I have to make this work. So I actually retrained as, so I've now run an accounting service business, uh, which I work from home. So I've been madly building that up over the last few years. So, and it's been the best thing I've done, to be honest. It's been great. Yeah, it's been a really positive thing in my life. So, And how did you find the process of having to retrain, you know, like in your words, in, in your late 40s? This is one of the themes that people often think, oh, it's too late for me or I can't do it at my age. Totally. And do you know what? I wouldn't have even considered it before. I I left school really early, no qualifications. I was doing other stuff at that time. So I hadn't studied for years and years and years. So it was a, a massive plunge for me to do it. But actually, as you go through it gradually, I've learned that I can, you can still learn at whatever age you are. I love hearing that. And I think that, you know, so many people will be listening to this and we all are the same, Jane. We've all got self-doubt. We're all racked with, with imposter syndrome. And actually, it, I think one of the most important conversations that we have on high performance is with people who've achieved great things and they are still flawed and they are still full of doubts and they are still learning and things. And I, I'd love to know who the guests were that resonated with you in that sense. You know, you talk about the fact that it can offer you know, a bit of companionship and an adult perspective in a business sense. So who was it that, that really spoke to you? First of all, I'd say it's the ones that you don't perhaps think. Like I'm, you know, sport fan, motor racing fan, kind of so gravitated towards those. But for me, it was people like James Timpson from a business perspective. Billy Mungo I loved. Paul McGinley. Steve Salas was amazing. It's little takeaways from everybody you listen to. You might not necessarily identify with everybody, but you can always learn something from somebody. If there was one message that you picked up from or from listening to nearly 120 of these episodes that you would pass on to somebody, what would you say that is? It's probably around the consistency, the hard work, um, and just having a bit of faith in your own abilities and getting some self-confidence that actually you can do it. But also for me, that you can't necessarily change and fix everything. You can only sort the things that you're in control of. And being a bit of a natural worrier, I worry about everything. And it's really helped me just sort of focus in on the things that actually I can control and to let go of the rest. That's been a big takeaway because I think a lot of people say that actually. 
Wow. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing that with us. Oh, it's been and, a pleasure. Um, I loved hearing the way you spoke about it and the impact it's had. That's ex- You are the very essence of what we do and why we do it. So thank you so much. Yeah, thank you, Jay. Oh, no, thanks yeah. for your time and thanks for inviting me on. Look, I really hope that you enjoyed that. Um, can I just remind you that most people that listen to this podcast, they get to this point. You, you know, we get the numbers, we get the information. Like, you are amazing. You listen all the way to the end, so thank you for that. But you still don't subscribe or follow us. And I can't tell you the difference it makes. If you can spend 10 seconds right now just hitting follow or hitting subscribe, it makes the world a difference. That's all I ask you to do. Do that. Share the podcast. Spread the podcast that way. Um, and that's it, really. I hope you enjoyed it once again. Huge thanks to you for growing, sharing, talking about this podcast among your own communities. It makes a huge difference to everybody. Please continue to spread the learnings that you're taking from this series. Thank you to Finn, to Hannah, to Will, to Eve, to Gemma, to Callum, to Chloe, to the whole team behind High Performance. And remember, there is no secret. It is all there for you. So chase world-class basics. Don't get high on your own supply. Remain humble, curious, and empathetic. And we'll see you soon. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.